I'm Maria Wilson. And I'm Danielle Mandikian. And we are scientists. We love science. Yeah, we do. So when we aren't doing it, the next best thing is to talk about science. And what's really awesome is that we're surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in research. So there is always someone interesting to talk to. But there's never much time just to chat at work. That's why we are so excited to be hosting this podcast. We're going to step away from the labs today to talk to other scientists about the cool stuff they are thinking about, working on, and imagining. As well as how some of these discoveries just might lead to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain, and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. The show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. We are going to do something a bit different for the next two episodes, tackling a very important topic, diversity in research. So this is a relatively new concept in the world of science, and basically it means that we recognize the need to think more expansively about the world, about people, and about data. So next time, we're going to talk with two of my colleagues specifically about clinical trials. Um, but today, we're going to talk with Mark McCarthy about human genes. Human genes are the instructions for all of our cells, and if we can figure out how to read this manual, then we can begin to have even more insights about all sorts of diseases as we look for new treatments. And of course, our genome expresses both our diversity from other humans and our similarity to other humans. And this is an area of just of great interest to me personally and something that I'm also working on. So it is such a delight to welcome you, Mark, to the bar. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So one of the hopes is that by learning more about our genomes, that we can get our medicine to be more precise, right? And I think one of the, for me, one of the paradoxes of genomics is it, it teaches us how similar we all are, but yet there is also variation that's associated with our ancestry, which is important. Yeah, I, I, I think we're realizing that kind of the one-size-fits-all approach to thinking about individual disease is, is no longer where we want to be. Uh, we're all aware that different people uh, vary in relation to the diseases they're likely to get, the ways those diseases are likely to progress, the uh, treatments that they might uh, might be most effective in them, and the treatments that might, most, might be most safe in them. And although we may not understand ever all the random effects that, that go into uh, those uh, differences, I think we're increasingly being able to characterize them in terms of the genetics, in terms of the uh, impact of gender, and all the other factors that play into the different ways that the individual responds to disease and, and responds to treatments, which obviously includes environmental factors and healthcare access and, and, and many different factors. So if we're really gonna get the right patient, uh, the right treatment at the right time, which is the maximum of precision or personalized medicine, we, we definitely need to know how each of those factors is in, in play and how it relates to disease risk and progression, how it relates to the treatments that we're uh, trying to uh, develop and, and deploy in, uh, to, to treat and prevent those diseases. So that's why I think you know, there's, a, there's a lot of emphasis now on ensuring that our research really from, from the bench right through to the bedside, from the basic research right through to the clinical trials that we do and the uh, translation that we do captures as much of that diversity uh, and is as inclusive as possible because if we don't do that we may well just uh, exacerbate some of the some of the current health disparities because 
so much of the data that we base our research on still emanates from yeah. particular populations. And uh, we, we, certain, we and others certainly need to do a, a better job of including diverse groups. Uh, and ancestry is an important part of that, but it's really not the only factor. And yeah. We need to think about gender and age and lifestyle and lived experience and many different things that, that can play into um, the ways in which our treatments work. Yes, this is so important. Before we get into this though, can we back up and just for our listeners, talk a little bit about the Human Genome Project. You and I lived through that, but it was of course a huge 10 plus year effort to sequence and map all human genes. What was the impact of that work? Well, just, just 20 years ago, but I mean, it's absolutely pivotal because nothing that we've been able to do since really would have been possible. I started in the field before we really had that map and it really was, um, in retrospect, like trying to walk through a dark house with a, with a very, uh, um, not very powerful torch, to be honest, because you could only illuminate one particular spot uh, at a time. And, and certainly what the Human Genome Project, first of all, gave us was at least a, a map of where the genes were and an understanding of what might be in the neighborhood. Um, but then as people became able to do slightly more sequencing beyond the first sequence and started doing projects like HapMap, where they started sequencing 100 people from Europe and 100 people from Africa and 100 people from, from Asia in the first instance. We started to see where these variable positions in the yeah. genome were. And that, that's really what then led on to the ability to de design, well, let's design an array that we can use to test all those sites of common variation. And that, that's really what led on to the genome-wide association studies and, and yep. subsequently on to the ability to, to generate um, sequence. So uh, absolutely pivotal. I mean, it's interesting that we've only just managed to finish the, the genome sequence now, working through all the uh, unsequenced bits. And just going back to what we were talking about, diversity, now people have done complete genome sequences, not just in Europeans, but in African descent individuals and other populations. We're starting to find there are some pieces of the genome that are only present in African descent individuals and have been... These are the non-coding parts? Just, or? yeah, just little uh, little sections that are uh, revealed when you take a broader range of, because the, the initial sequence was done on an amalgam of European individuals and, and you know, that didn't capture all, not just the, the point by point diversity, but the bits of the genome that can be inserted and, and yeah, deleted and, okay. and so on. So I didn't realize it had only just been completed. Yeah, I thought it had been done a while ago. Yeah, well, okay. they were finished for genomes at various different points, but yeah. now as technology has advanced, and particularly these the repeat regions that yes, are pretty hard yeah. to sequence through, as some of that's been solved, I think we're, we're pretty close now to um, a complete uh, genome sequence, not just for one individual, but one which really represents, yes. captures all the pieces of the genome that exist in m most people somewhere on the globe. Hi, Maria. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, Maria. Hey, Wellington. So we had the same question. I thought we had completed the Human Genome Project back in 2003. Right. So we did, but it is a bit confusing. So it turns out that most of the human genome was sequenced by 2003, like most of the AGTC base pairs, more than 90% had been sequenced in 2003, but there were some portions that were inaccessible to the technology at the time, these very repetitive sequences that weren't accurately sequenced. Um, so as Mark mentioned, the technology has gotten so much better that there have been groups working to complete 
sequencing every little last bit of the genome so that, so that we do have an absolute complete reference. So what types of things have we found that may, have maybe changed how we think about diseases? From a, from a diversity and inclusion perspective, I think we, we see that many of these common diseases are broadly similar in terms of their genetic variation that underlies them and the processes that are involved. But of course, the, the specific genetic variants may be different between populations down to um, historical differences in, in the frequency of particular variant uh, alleles and so on and the complex history of uh, folks' migration around, around the globe. So the same gene may have become involved yeah. independently in different populations, different, yes, uh, different yes. mutations. Yes, different mutations, yeah. different uh, variants have, uh, have arisen. And that, that has one big um, implication. One, one of the ways in which we think we're going to be able to use uh, complex trait genetics, so the genetic uh, understanding of Alzheimer's or, or diabetes or coronary artery disease or, or any of these diseases, is to develop uh, these so-called polygenic risk scores. The, yes. When, when you take a disease like type 2 diabetes with six or 700 common variants influencing uh, disease risk, you, it's easy to imagine that individually those are, impacts are quite small, maybe tweaking your risk of diabetes up 5% here, 2% there. Um, if you bring them together, then you start to have something that is quite powerful and, for example, can quite easily pull apart people whose risk of diabetes is about tenfold different. Yes. People with lots of diabetes risk alleles will have maybe as close as a 50% lifetime yeah. risk of diabetes. Those with very few um, diabetes risk alleles just by chance will, will be down in the you know, much lower few percent risk. Um, but that does really depend on generating those polygenic risk scores and then applying them in the same population because because yeah. of the factors we just talked about that the processes might be similar but the actual genetic variants may be different. Be different. If yeah. you take a polygenic score that you've developed in a European population and try and apply it in an African uh, population for African descent population it won't work very well at all yeah. and that's another reason why we need to be generating data in many different uh, ancestries so that we can develop these polygenic scores that are equally effective yes. at stratifying risk in, in people in different populations. Otherwise, again, we'll be just exacerbating exactly. health disparities. Yeah. We'll be generating a tool which works quite well in European descent individuals and doesn't work as well in other populations. And especially if, it, if, it, if the tools get rolled out and the and it's not understood that they have these liabilities. Mm. That's, I think, a big danger, right? Yes. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. yeah. Exactly. But it should technically be possible with the right data inputs to generate a sort of universal polygenic risk score. Yes, and there's yeah. been some progress towards doing that, but still it's, it's compromised by the paucity of data from yeah. many of these uh, uh, ancestries. Hey, Maria, let's back up for a second. I was not trained as a geneticist. Um, so let's understand, let's try to understand polygenic risk scores a little bit more. What do they represent and how do we use them? So that's a great question. Um, the way to think about polygenic risk score is it's another way of, of determining sort of what's your statistical chance of having any particular disease. So for example, think about something like having a heart attack. What's yours or mine 
statistical chance of us having a heart attack in the next five years or the next 10 years. So without any information, you can look at the whole of the population of the world and say, on average, maybe you've got in a, your lifetime risk of having a heart attack is quite high. It's probably like one in four across your whole lifetime. And without knowing anything about you, you could, you could say something like that. But then if I have more information about your gender, your lifestyle, your um, plasma lipids, I could give you a more accurate prediction of how likely you are to have a heart attack. And then if we look at you genetically, that gives you so much more information. And what the polygenic risk score is, it's using variants in multiple different genes, all of which contribute to cardiovascular disease. We're often a lot more familiar with something like a monogenic disease, where yes, there's a defect in the one gene, and if you have that defect, there's a 100% chance you're going to have that disease. But most diseases are not monogenic, but they have a genetic contribution. So for something like cardiovascular disease, or diabetes, or Alzheimer's, what we're doing is we're looking at, well, you have variant X in this gene, maybe to do with lipids. You have a, another variant in a gene to do with inf inflammation, and we use um, statistical analysis of big data sets so you get what looks like a fingerprint like if you have you know 20 or 30 of these genes all of which have this particular variant that signature says you're actually at a much higher risk for cardiovascular disease than someone else who doesn't and now that doesn't mean you're going to have a heart attack in five years or even or even in 10 years but it does tell you and you and your medical professionals that you're perhaps at a higher risk than somebody else um, and you wouldn't know that unless you looked at your genes. So when you're studying the genetics of a disease, what do we understand at the moment about the role of variants in different populations? For example, in something like diabetes, why is it that we see the same genes and variants involved in some populations, but maybe different ones in others? Um, so in terms of what the genetic studies have, have highlighted about um, differences between major parts of the world in terms of diabetes risk. Because most of the work has been done using these genome-wide association studies that mostly focuses on common variation, we've been really looking through one in the telescope, and it's true that most common variation, because it's, been, it's risen to being common because it's been around for a long time, is often widely shared between major population groups. So maybe no big surprise that we see quite a lot of the a genetic variant that's associated with diabetes in uh, Europe may often be also associated in, in Africa and in uh, Asia. But that's not entirely true. Sometimes we see slightly different variants in the same gene have popped up. And as we get down to looking at rarer and rarer signals, which is what is increasingly becoming possible through access to sequence level data, rare variants tend to be rather more recent and they therefore tend to have a rather more circumscribed location. So we're certainly starting to understand what some of the differences in disease risk and progression might be uh, as they relate to some of these rare, rare variants that maybe have only present in one population or by chance have risen to uh, high rates in just one population. So the one example that, that is quite striking is that one of the biggest effects of diabetes risk in people of East Asian origin is a variant in a gene called Pax4 that's a transcription factor that's known to be involved in beta cell uh, development. It has about a 10% frequency, that, that variant, that gives you risk, increased risk of diabetes in uh, individuals of East Asian origin. But it's 
almost ex completely absent in other populations around the world as far as we can tell. So that is a, an example of a variant that we would have known nothing about had we not done studies in those other, other populations and it's an illustration of the ways in which by doing that we, we can pick up signals we wouldn't otherwise have, have seen. That is a great point, and it really underscores why it's so critical to include diverse populations in our studies, because we just don't know what we don't know if we don't look, right? So what are going to be those challenges that we need to think about in trying to make sure everyone is represented in our genetic data? One of the things I think we need to be careful about when we start thinking about precision medicine is not to settle for just dividing people up into rigid categories. There's, there's a, a real tendency to want to do that. Medicine is built around categorizing diseases mm -hmm. and so on. Um, and we also see that with, with ancestry. We, we have this exquisite data we can generate from millions of data points um, that capture lots of information about an individual's makeup and, and uh, their ancestry, but then we collapse it down to these crude categories of white and black or the different census categories that are used in in the US in, in ways that really fail to capture the nuance of that and okay it can be useful to have those broad categories but they also reinforce the notion both in terms of you know, disease subtypes and um, ancestry that these really are discrete groups yeah. that are somehow intrinsically different when Clearly, it's a continuum. Yeah. Um, it's a continuum between uh, folks of European descent and African descent because many people have a mix of those. It's a continuum between type 1 and type 2 diabetes because there's nothing that says if you have type 1 or risk of type 1, you can't get type 2 as well. And yeah. some people have a, have a combination of those. Why do you think we do that? I think part of the motivation there comes from the simple fact that in medicine, you do often have to make a binary decision, yeah. am I gonna treat X or Y, am I gonna operate, am I gonna do this test, am I gonna give treatment A or treatment B? So you understand that at some point you, you may have to put You have some to decide which door in the hospital you're you walking go, through, exactly. GI or cardiovascular. Yeah. What often happens is that when the patient first presents, before any of those decisions have to be made, uh, there's an effort to, to pigeonhole them, to yeah. categorize, um, and to reduce all this rich, genetic data and wearable data and clinical data we may have on that individual and say, oh, they're at high risk for coronary artery disease or they're at low risk of it, or they have type A of disease or type yeah. B. Uh, and that neglects the fact, that A, that those are very clue classifications and there's a continuum. It neglects the fact that actually people will evolve. And five years later, somebody who is in type A might look a bit more like type B. And if you have pigeonholed them and given them a label, then you may end up treating them five years hence for the disease that they no longer really have. So I think, although it's, it's great and it's a move forward to think, well, how does our treatment that we might be developing work in people of South Asian descent? And how does it work in people of African descent? We should not stop there. We right. should be moving beyond that and since we can actually capture all that genetic data let's actually understand the it at that much more detailed level rather than trying to collapse all of that rich data down to just one just, yeah. one dimension
You know, and just to give an example of that, there's a historical example of that, uh, a treatment for HIV, there's a risk of uh, hypersensitivity reactions, um, and that's associated with a particular HLA genotype. The, the frequency of that is about 0.5% in Europeans, and it was thought historically to be actually much rarer in people of African descent, so maybe, maybe we don't need to do the genetic testing in people of African descent. Turns out that was just based on a very small bit of African diversity, and there are African populations, for example, the Maasai in Kenya, where the prevalence is 10%. So just reducing it to white versus black is a very, very crude and inadequate measure of what we need to be doing. So uh, I, I, I do think it's important as we develop these uh, thinking about personalized medicine that we don't simply replace one size fits all with two sizes yes. fits all because actually that's not much of a step you, Too much generalization yeah. isn't helpful. I always, I always, I think a simple analogy I like to use when we talk about this is that it's a true statement to say that human men are, are taller than human mm. women, but it's not that hard to yeah. find a human woman who's yeah, taller than exactly. another human man, right? Mm. So that it, it's, it's, yes. it's exactly. useful to be able to broadly say, oh, this group of people is broadly has this yeah. phenotype, but you can't just rely on yeah. that. And if we yeah. really want to get to precision medicine by what people mean by it, you know, we should be capturing all of that rich diversity of information that we can potentially, you know, provided we do it ethically and with privacy and all the, yeah. all the, the appropriate safeguards, you know, that is a rich resource that we can use to understand uh, how each of us travels from some state of health to some state of disease. And being able to do that, not just a one-time point, but to do that longitudinally, I think is also really instructive because we all start in different places. So if we're uh, comparing ourselves against the population, we might not really have a full sense of where we have traveled historically. Uh, it's a bit like the, um, the cyclists in the, the Tour de France when they're checking them for doping. They don't necessarily wait until their testosterone level's gone outside the normal range. Yeah. They may look back at, well, two years ago, your testosterone level was 12, and now it's 18, and that, that ain't normal. It's still that's in the normal, normal range. That's not normal for you, yes. But that's not, that's not normal for you. So that ability to compare against the historical self and to pick up subtle changes in that may be premonition of, of incipient moves towards disease, uh, I think that's gonna be uh, particularly powerful. And that won't be captured by just trying to reduce everything down to high risk and low yes. risk. So I know something that Wellington will want to know is what's the difference between genetics and genomics? Yes, it's, it's one of those terms. They're both used a little imprecisely. Um, when we talk about genetics, I think we are specifically talking about genetic variation and how it moves through families and how it's related to um, the clinical phenotypes that we care about. Genomics is, is a broader concept of uh, a sort of meta-level um, study of genetics, but encompassing how do all the genetic parts fit together, how do they relate to the way in which the DNA codes for RNA and the way in which the RNA is converted into to protein. So it, it's a more systematic and holistic uh, perspective of how DNA and DNA variation relates to um, all the impacts that it has on, on the body. Maria, you know me too well. I totally wanted to know that answer. Um, but I did have a second question. Where, where are we going to see this genetic and genomic data in 
my experience of medicine. Yeah, I think it's going to be so exciting in the future how this can potentially impact our health. But at the moment, we're in this brave new world where some people do get access to this information. There are various companies that you can get genetic information about disease risk from, but it's not become standard of care as of yet. But I can imagine a future where it will be, where there will be FDA approved, genetic testing, where people will know their polygenic risk score, where your insurance companies will reimburse you to get these tests done. And then the question is, what do you and your healthcare provider do with that information? And some of it will be, well, if I know that I am at a particularly high risk for um, cardiovascular disease or diabetes, you may know this already because you'll have family members who suffer from it, but you'd know it more concretely with the polygenic risk score, you can take your own actions to modify lifestyle um, is, one, is one way you could use that information in an empowered way yourself. But then also I do think we'll start to understand how medicines impact long-term disease progression um, related to polygenic risk scores. So potentially your primary care provider might be able to say to you one day, look, you have a higher risk than average for this disease or that disease, and there's some clinical data that shows that if I give you this medicine, um, it will reduce the incidence and the risk of you having that disease, and you'll have the choice whether or not to take that potentially. So um, what drove you to become a physician and then a scientist? Could you tell us a little bit of your story? Um, yeah, I, I struggle to regulate how I got ended up as a physician, but I, like many people who did science at, uh, at school, I, I ended up going to medical school um, and then ended up, as, as again many people do, uh, careering from, from one speciality to another, as you do, as you rotate as a, as a junior doctor, and ended up in endocrinology, and I thought that's, that's pretty cool. So I ended up choosing to uh, be a physician uh, with a speciality in endocrinology. Uh, and rose through the, the ranks, as you do, of you know, what you'd call residents here, here, and so on. Didn't do much science, had no desire really to do research whatsoever. But the situation in, in the UK at the time, uh, and still true to some extent, was that if you really didn't have a research degree as well, it was difficult to get a, a, a good consultant uh, job. So I was dragged kicking and screaming into the lab to, to do research for two or three years, which I really hated at the <laughs> outset. Because, you know, you train as a, as a medic for eight, ten years, and you're pretty, pretty good at it by the time you reach that point. So it felt like being a pretty good 100-meter athlete who was suddenly told, well, don't bother doing that anymore, you know, start throwing the hammer. I will say that as a PhD science postdoc, when the medical people came into the lab, you're like, oh God, who's yeah. going to look after him? So I was that person. I was <laughs> yes. that person for some while. And then just towards the end of, uh, uh, you know, I got a few papers published, gave a couple of talks, got a bit of confidence because I had terrible imposter syndrome, um, and then got a chance to go to the, the States to work at the Whitehead for a, for a year. And that, that was really transformative because it... Uh, um, it was a great environment and it sort of gave me the confidence that I could hack it with the, the best of them. So when I went back to the UK after my time in the States was up, I fell back into a position that was half medical and half research, started building up my own research lab, started doing less and less medicine, started feeling less and less comfortable doing medicine because I was <laughs> less and less, um, spending less and less time doing it and yeah, ended up uh, moving to doing more and more, um, uh, more, and more science. So. Uh, I'd love to tell you it was some fantastic career scheme that <laughs> led me inexorably from my uh, 
16-year-old self to this position, but it was far from that. It was a, just a, as you know, maybe happens to other people, just a, a series of um, uh, events that uh, uh, guided me one way or the other. So I bet there are some 16-year-old potential scientists listening to this podcast. Um, and I know that when I was 16, like you, I didn't really have a career plan in mind, but I was fascinated with genetics and with DNA. Um, so if you were trying to decide what to focus on as a young researcher, why pick genetics? Um, genetics is fantastically exciting uh, as a, t a topic. I mean, the, the things that we can do um, are beyond our wildest imagines of what we could do 20 years ago. And, and looking forward, I'm sure the same will be will be true um, looking forward in 20 years' time. It's a time where we're, we're benefiting from fantastic technological developments. We're getting lots of novel insights into disease biology that uh, it's hard to imagine we would have found in any other way. And I would think what we're going to see over the next 20 years is the translation of that knowledge into, into better ways of preventing and treating disease. Part of that will be down to using what we understand about disease biology to, to say, well, here, here's, here's a pathway we should be perturbing, and if we perturb it uh, and we can find a molecule to do that, we, we may well have a safe and effective way to treat and prevent disease that we didn't have previously. But partly, it'll be about embedding uh, an individual's genetics in their medical records so that we can use it in many different ways to understand which diseases somebody might be particularly at risk for so that we tailor the screening and the way that we think about d disease detection to, to fit with their uh, genetic risk, to think about what treatments may be best for somebody based on the knowledge of that genetics and also the impact of genetics on side effects of particular treatments. So I think we're going to see all of that play out. And I'd be very surprised if in many parts of the world in 20 years' time you don't have your entire genome sequence sitting in your clinical record uh, and impacting on the ways in which you interact with the healthcare system during your life. Hopefully, um, using that to, to prolong the, the healthy period of individuals and should they get disease, have a much better basis for, for, for treating and preventing it. But I, I definitely would say that we shouldn't neglect all the other things that are not genetic that also are in that mix. So I think uh, alongside the genetics, we're also going to learn much more about those environmental effects and how we can measure them and how we can mitigate them so that we can uh, build individual profiles of disease and individual um, strategies for, for combating the risks of diseases that each of us is particularly prone to. So yes, in say 50 years from now, if you uh, walk into a doctor's office and with elevated glucose and you're diagnosed with diabetes, what do you think um, the treatment's going to be like? Well, I'm, I'm tempted to say that we would have failed if people are still walking in with elevated glucose levels because we would yeah. hope to be in a much better position of identifying those who are at greatest risk based on their genetics and other risk factors and, and getting in there early with safe and effective strategies to um, reduce their risk. And we, we know that you know, lifestyle and some therapeutics can, can, can be very effective at doing that. Um, should somebody have gotten to a point where they get disease, then I think we would have the wherewithal to understand a little bit better about what particular processes have contributed mostly to them ending up in that state and therefore 
be in a position to think about what is the right portfolio of therapeutic and non-therapeutic approaches that we should take to try and put the biology back in its uh, towards normal so that we can um, not just treat the diabetes but in some sense cure it. So you might be able to say well your genetics tell me that exercise isn't going to work very well for you you're not a very exercise sensitive person so I'm going to put you straight onto a fairly um, you know a medicine whereas with another patient maybe I would say you know you're really exercise sensitive and and you need to eat more vegetables and less carbohydrates and yeah. that'll probably fix you yeah, so, yeah. I mean <laughs> Being very I think along those lines I mean of course there are, there are companies out there who will tell you that they can do that with your genomes at the mo at the moment but you know that goes well beyond the bounds of Science. So, at the yeah. very least, I hope that <laughs> when those claims are made in 50 years' time, they have a, a lot more science behind them and a lot more evidence that they're actually uh, doing what they, what they promise. Thank you, Mark. It's been so much fun talking to you today. Thanks for the invitation. Great talking to you. Wow, Maria, what a great conversation. I started thinking about just how much data is going to be produced in the coming years. Yeah, I agree. There, especially when you start thinking about how to capture all of the diversity and variation across the human genome, sequencing every person's genome, for example, how much data there is, and is, is that information sufficient? Is that all we need to understand biology? So that's such a great question, and I think the answer is it's not, right? Because the genome and your genome and your genetics is just one piece of information. And you can see this quite um, obviously, when you look at two identical twins, they're not the same, don't have the same diseases, don't have the same life outcomes necessarily, and yet their ge your genome is identical to your identical twin at the level of the, 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 the fundamentals of the genome. So it's one piece of information, it's really, really powerful. We're going to learn with these big data sets so much more about how genetics links to health and disease. But I think it's gonna raise even more questions then it answers in that how that intersects with all of the other things that are determinants of our health and life that are not coded in our genome, and, and we'll have to work on that too. And that's our show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a show and leave us a rating. If you have any questions, please write to us at podcast at gene.com. That's G-E-N-E dot -E com. And now for me, it's back to puzzling over data. 